So, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Scott already read the passage, and let me introduce it a little bit. Uh, What we have is from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's goal, the theme of the book in between those verses, those chapters, is essentially, you are a sinner and you need the gospel. You are a sinner, you have failed, you have not kept the law, you are in desperate need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. The point of, the, of uh, those verses is to expose us to our sin, so that ultimately, after this verse, it's going to transition to how wonderful and beautiful the gospel is, and, and basically from... 321, all the way through the end of the book, we see how incredible the gospel is, how, how mind-blowing it is that, that God would save us and, and how that's done through his son, Jesus Christ. But from 118 all the way to 320, we see you're a sinner in need of grace. You're a sinner and you need, or you are a sinner and you need mercy. You're a sinner and you need the ultimate savior, Jesus Christ. And this is not done to to criticize or point the finger or be unkind to the Jewish people or or to anyone. And what the apostle is doing is he desires that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But until we admit our guilt and our need of Christ, we are not in a position to repent of our sins and believe in Christ as our Savior. And so we we can't have the benefits of salvation if we refuse to acknowledge and repent of our sins. So Paul is repeatedly and unapologetically pounding home this truth that we are guilty and we stand in need of grace. That's the theme from those two chapters. Before we jump too far in, uh, let's, let's pause for a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. God, we thank you that, that, uh, that not only did you create us and, and, and put this world into motion with just your words, not only did you put us in this place at this time for your purpose, but you gave us a community to worship with, that we have a community to sing your praises with, that we have a community to serve our city with and preach the gospel with and travel, whether it be to Denver or to Brazil or wherever, to, to, uh, to take the gospel to the nations. God, we thank you so much that, that we have a church, that we have a church that, that we can be in community with. We thank you so much that we have a community that will pray for us and serve us and celebrate things like, like a new birth. God, we pray for Alex and Katrina. We thank you so much that you have blessed them with their little girl. And we pray for their family as, as they adjust. We pray for Elamika as she, as she figures out how to be a big sister and what that means uh, for her time with her mom and dad. God, we thank you that, that you, have, you have blessed them in that way. And we pray for both of those little girls, Elamika and Aria, that they would grow to be um, women of incredible faith and virtue and that they would serve you their entire life. And God, we as a church celebrate with them as they celebrate the birth of their daughter. God, we thank you that we were able to partner with missionaries around the globe who are, who are preaching the gospel and serving in a, in a variety of different ways. God, you are wonderful, and you are marvelous, and you are holy, and you are perfect in every way. 
and we come before you to worship you. We don't come for a concert. We don't come for uh, uh, to see our friends. We, we come to worship you because you're worthy of worship. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the first thing I want you to see in, in these verses um, is in verse 19. Notice what the apostle says in verse 19. He says, we know that whatever the law says, right? We, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Speaks to those who are under the law. Now, there might be a, a better translation I, I, I think that it uh, should be speaks to those who are in the law. There, there's a different terminology later in Romans that can be confusing if we say under the law. I think a better translation is in the law. In 6.14, uh, you see that phrase again, under the law, that, that kind of means something else. And it uses a different term. In the law is probably better here. Uh, Paul is speaking of those to whom the law has been given to, primarily given to, the, the main audience that the Old Testament was delivered to. That's what he's talking about, okay? So he's thinking of the Jewish people, right? And, and remember, in their minds, in, in their minds, in, to the Jewish people in Paul's day, in their minds, they're saying, we're not under condemnation. What do I need the gospel for? What do I need a savior for? I'm a, Paul, I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm one of God's chosen people. I have the law. I, I've been called. I, I, don't, I don't need a savior. To the Jewish people in Paul's day, they were not under condemnation. Only the lawless Gentiles were under condemnation. If you're unfamiliar with that term, Gentiles means pretty much everyone who is not a Jew. Right? And so to the Jewish person, to the pious Jew in Paul's day, they're thinking, I'm not under condemnation. I don't need to worry about being saved because I'm, I'm a Jew. But the Gentiles, they're pagans. And the Gentiles, everyone who's not a Jew, they're under condemnation and they need to deal with their sin. Right? So that's what the Jewish person in Paul's day would have been thinking. And Paul is setting out or going out to set them straight. Paul says in Romans 3.19 that the whole, the all of Scripture speaks directly and authoritatively to the, to the Jewish community. And again, remember, the Jews claim that the law condemns the Gentiles exclusively. But the, but the law will, in the end, they believed, uh, basically assure them of favor. Because they viewed the law as containing promises specifically to them. All right? There's a, a complete misunderstanding of the Old Testament uh, by the Jewish people in Paul's day. Okay? So, notice that Paul uses the term law here in a very general sense. Sometimes when we read the Bible and it says law, it's specifically talking about the Ten Commandments. Sometimes when we read law, it's specifically talking about the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. They're all authored by Moses. Sometimes the law means the specific laws in the Pentateuch, right? But here, the Apostle Paul says the law, and what he means is the Old Testament, okay? What you and I would call the Old Testament, Paul here is calling the law, okay? So it's very general, 
Remember, he's just quoted from Isaiah and from Psalms in verses, uh, in verses 9 to 18. He's quoting there from uh, Isaiah and Psalms, and so he calls that the law. So he's, he's using the law, just like it's in other places. It's used this way in John a couple of times in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the law refers to the Old Testament, okay? And this is what he's saying. In a nutshell, I'm going to paraphrase him. He says, of course, the warnings and the condemnations and the cursings written down in the Old Testament against the Gen- is against the Gentiles. And of course, that applies to the Gentiles. But primarily, those warnings and those curses and those condemnations apply to the people of God who first received the law. The Jewish people were the ones who first received those writings. And so it is to those people, first and foremost, that those condemnations and those warnings were delivered to. He's saying that the the Jew needs to realize that the condemnations of the Old Testament are not specifically meant for the nations, for for the Gentiles. They're meant for them when they do not embrace the covenant with their entire life. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is all all of those warnings, all of those curses, all of those condemnations in the Old Testament apply to the Jewish people if you are unable to perfectly obey what the Old Testament says. And the kicker is that there is not a single person in the history of the world, aside from Jesus Christ, who is able to perfectly obey the Old Testament. And so because the Jewish people received the law, they were under condemnation because they could not obey the law. Paul speaks of the scriptures, and some of them were written a thousand years before the time that he was writing this, right? And he speaks as though they're speaking directly to his audience. God's word is living. If anyone ever accuses you of thinking too highly of God's word, you can be assured of two things. First off, you're on the right track. And secondly, they're not. They're not. If someone accuses you that you think too highly of God's word, you are on the right track. And the person who accuses you of that is not on the right track. Right? Uh, the, the apostle sees the word of God as living and active and powerful. And so he uses, he uses these terms, it speaks and it says. Notice that he sees it as, as relevant to the, to the present circumstances of his day. Isaiah was written between six and 700 years before the apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. Uh, the psalm that, that he quotes in Romans uh, 9 to 18 was written about a thousand years before he wrote the book of Romans. And yet he's applying it to his direct circumstance. It is not as though the scriptures are just some, some archaic writing, some old book that, that is full of wisdom. No, the scriptures are living and applicable. And he knows that they're applicable to us as well. Notice again, that Paul sees these, these words as especially relevant to their primary recipients. 
As the Jews are looking at the Bible and seeing its condemnation to the Gentiles, and they're saying, look, look, those pagan Gentiles, they do deserve condemnation. Remember, the Jews are looking at the non-Jews, at the Gentiles, and they're saying, look, look at how they worship. Look at, the, look at the way that they live their life. Look at the things that they do. They deserve condemnation. And Paul's saying, think about, think about who God wrote those words to. Who did he deliver those letters to? Who did he send the prophets to? Who, who, who was God communicating directly with? Was it the nations or was it the Jewish people? He wrote them to you. He wrote them to his community, to his people, the Jewish people. The people who had heard God himself give the word and, and they saw Moses bring the tablets down from the mountain and they heard Isaiah preaching and they heard Jeremiah and they heard Ezekiel and all of the other prophets and preachers throughout their history. They heard it. And Paul's saying no one should assume that apart from Jesus Christ that they are exempt from the scripture's warning. No one should ever assume that on their own, they are righteous. They are right before God. Nor should they be too swift to apply those warnings to other people without having first taken, you know, kind of evaluated themselves. And no one should sit there and, and pick up the scriptures and read the scriptures and say, man, this really applies to this guy. Without ever saying, I'm guilty. I'm guilty and I deserve condemnation. I've rebelled against God. That's always what we should say first. If we hear a sermon or we read a scripture or we read a convicting book and we say, man, I wish so-and-so would hear this, you're missing the point. Even this morning, if you're here and as we go through this scripture and we go through this message, you're saying, man, I wish my husband was here. I wish my wife was here. I wish my, my kids were here. My friend was here. You're missing the point. Because you should first think, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I, this applies to me. I need to repent. And yeah, I'd, I'd love for my wife to be there with me. I'd love to do that with her. I'd love my husband to be here with me as we do that. Or I would love to see my, my children repent and believe or whatever it might be. But man, this applies to me. Paul's telling the Jewish people of his day that the scriptures speak directly to them. And they're authoritative, right? And, and, and especially to them. But Paul's message is not just for the Jewish people of his day. You and I can't, can't sit here and read Romans 3 and say, boy, the Jewish people of Paul's day, they sure didn't have it right. Boy, they really needed to hear this message. They sure were sinful. This applies to you and me as well. Paul's message is that Christians must beware of applying the Bible's warnings exclusively to others. This is a common thing. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever heard a pastor or evangelist or a Christian teacher uh, do this? It's actually really common, and it's a really w easy way um, to preach. It is, right? And so what they'll do is, is they'll, they'll flatter the ears of the people that are listening as they condemn the world. 
It is easy for me to stand up here and say, man, they they are really evil out there. If you walk outside these doors, there's all sorts of immorality and all sorts of sin and all sorts of terrible things. And I can open up the newspaper and I can show you some horrible things that are happening around our country and even in our own city. And we can say, wow, people are, are bad. They're sinful. That's easy to do. And I think a lot of people do it because Because it's easy, but it's harder to address the sins that we have to deal with in our own context, in our own congregation, in our own church, in this very room. It's harder. Again, we we can look at how, how evil the world is becoming and we can find examples and we can all cheer and we can all say, yeah, boy, there, there sure is a lot of sin out there. What about the sin in here? What about the sin in this community? Yes, the world needs to hear the gospel. Yes, absolutely the world needs to repent. But repentance needs to take place in the church as well. Paul's looking right at these people and on his own fellow... Remember, Paul's a Jew too. It's his own people. And he's saying, remember that God's word first came to you. It condemns you first. You're you're the first one that heard it. You're the first one that received it. Your people, were the, the prophets were from your own people. God communicated with you. He shared this message first and foremost with you. And so you're guilty. And I'm saying to you today, from the authority of of the scriptures. Don't think about how it applies to them outside in the world. Don't think about how it applies to someone else. Think about what Paul is saying to you. Think about what what God is saying to you through his scriptures. That's, That's the first thing I want you to see. That's the first thing I want you to wrestle with. In fact, remember the message that we looked at last week or the passage we had last week of how sinful we are. Just this passage before from 9 to 18. Think about how that applies to you. The next thing, at the second half of verse 19, there's another thing I want you to look at. Paul tells us why God's word speaks, especially to the community in the context of its sin. So the scripture speaks in order that we might be absolutely blown away before God while we wait for for sentencing. Okay, remember in in, uh, the passage right above this, he he basically just punched us all in the gut. We're all guilty. We're, We're sinful. And so Paul says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world may be held accountable to God. If we really believe the Bible, if we really understand and are pursuing to to understand and grasp it and studying God's word, we will understand that everyone is guilty. Everyone's guilty. Everyone is accountable. All are speechless before God's judgment. Everyone who is apart from Christ has no defense, and they stand condemned. If you are 
not in Christ, if you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not received the benefits of his saving work, then you are going to be speechless and declared guilty and accountable before God at the great judgment. But pious Jews believed that the Gentiles were the only ones that were under that type of condemnation. They were the ones that needed salvation. But they themselves did not believe uh, that they needed the gospel or needed a savior. And so Paul, again, is pressing them with the realization that they are in just a great error. He's saying, you don't get it. You don't understand. You're in desperate need for a Savior. You're guilty. The Scriptures were sent to you. You are in trouble. Look at a word that Paul uses in 19. There's a phrase, that they may be held accountable to God. This is another one of those legal terms. Uh, the first one uh, that we saw in this uh, argument was at the very end of Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And uh, back then we said that all the world is without excuse is, is kind of what it means there. All the world is without excuse. And that term literally is, it's, a, it's kind of a courtroom term that means that uh, it's like a defendant that has no def- defense. Like it is so clear that they are guilty that they don't even try to defend themselves. They don't even say anything. Okay, uh, he doesn't have anything to say. It'd be if I if I went and I tried to rob a bank and there were a thousand video cameras showing exactly what I did and there were a hundred microphones that recorded every word that I said and there were a thousand eyewitnesses that said, yeah, he did it, right? And I go to court and I I, I would have no way of even trying to defend myself. I'd say, I, yeah, I was there, I did it. There, there's there's nothing that can be said. Right? This is basically saying he doesn't have an argument. He, he doesn't have a defense before the court. So picture what he's talking about here in Romans chapter 3. The trial has begun. Right? We've had no argument, no defense. We have nothing to say for ourselves. There's no defense for what we are being accused of, for what we have done. And we've been convicted of the crime. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, he says that the, that the law says what it says, so that every mouth will be stopped so that we might be held accountable before God. It's that word accountable means that we are going to be speechless before God as we wait for the judgment. It's almost as if the judge in the courtroom is saying you know, to the criminal, you know, do you have anything to say to this court before we proceed to sentencing? The criminal is absolutely silenced by the certainty of his guilt. Paul knows that as we read the scriptures, the requirement for understanding the word of God is understanding our own sin, having a grasp for our own sin. And if we read the scriptures without an appreciation for our own sin, we will always always, every time, read the Scriptures incorrectly. If we read the Scriptures saying, I'm, I'm not that bad. If we read the Scriptures saying, you know, I, I, I try to do good, and, I, you know, I'm a good person. I, th- I think God would justify me. I, I, really, I really, you know, I have good intentions. If we approach the Scriptures that way, we will never understand them. If we minimize our own sin or explain it away, or try to justify it in some manner, 
then we will never understand the Scriptures. We'll always read it wrong. And so Paul pauses here to say that the proper understanding of someone who is in kind of the, who understands the law, who's heard the law, who's been presented the law, they know the judgments of the law, the proper understanding is to recognize his or her sinfulness and need of grace. You cannot understand the gospel if you do not understand your sin. That, that's absolutely true. And that's why Paul goes from uh, the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3 to explain to every single person on the planet that we're guilty. We're guilty and we need a Savior. We need a righteousness that does not come from us. So then Paul goes on to say uh, the third thing in verse 20. Look at the first part of verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. This verse gives the reason why every mouth is stopped and why the whole world is condemned. Right? And the reason is we are sinners. We are sinners and the law cannot save us. The law cannot save us. It cannot acquit us. It cannot justify us. In, the, in the, the wake of the fall, our own sin, the law only serves to condemn us. It, it shines a light on our sinfulness. And so Paul says, very provocatively, by the way, uh, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Notice, notice what Paul's speaking about. He, does, he doesn't speak about just any old work. He speaks about uh, the law here, the works of the law. He's anticipating kind of some pushback, an argument coming back from him. He's anticipating uh, the Jewish people to say something along the lines of, Paul, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that just by doing some good things that God must bless me and fulfill his promises to me. I'm saying by doing the things that his word tells me that I'm supposed to do, that's how I will be saved. And Paul says, okay, by those, uh, by those, no flesh is going to be justified. There, there's no way that you're able to do those works. There's no one that can fulfill those works. And if you've been following along in the book of Romans, that might cause you pause. It might cause you pause because back in chapter 2, verse 13, he said at the end of that verse that the doers of the law would be justified. And so you have a question, is Paul contradicting himself here? Didn't you just say, Paul, that, that if you do the law, you'll be justified? Are, are you taking that back? Or are you not denying that? Is there something wrong here in Paul's argument? And the answer is no. And the answer is no, because there is no one who is able to perfectly obey the law. There is not a single person outside of Jesus Christ. There is not a single person in all of human history who has ever perfectly obeyed the law. No one. And so we all stand guilty. And because no one has perfectly obeyed the law, the law will not save anyone. And what the law does, one of the, one of the reasons why we have the law is the law shows us how, how, how short we fall. That, that's what it shows us. It exposes our sin. It shows us how we have, we have no chance. We cannot do it. 
What the, that's what Paul's doing. Paul's not saying that the principle, the concept is, is wrong. The problem is not the principle. The problem is there is nobody who can perfectly obey the law. So Paul says, because of this, no flesh, no one will be justified in his sight. No one's done it. No one can do it. It's not the concept, the principle. The problem is us. It's me and it's you. I am my problem. My sin is my problem. Your sin is your problem. When you fail, you can't say, oh, well, I was just tricked into it. Or, or, or oh, the, you know, Satan made me do it. You know, it's not really my fault, it's his. You can't blame me or hold me accountable for it. And so the Apostle Paul says, you know, I, I want to be clear here. If the standard of judgment is God's law, and it is, and you appear before God hoping in your goodness, hoping in your good intentions, hoping in the amount of good works that you do. You know, you're, you're hoping in the fact that you're a nice person and you help others, you give money to the poor and all of those things. You've done the works of the law and you've been a part of the, the community, you've been a part of the church, but you haven't ever trusted in Jesus Christ. You haven't, you haven't acknowledged that you need a Savior and, and trusted in Him through faith then your hope is useless. If your hope is yourself, then you stand condemned. One of the beautiful things about Jesus Christ is that Jesus did not just pave a way for us to get where we need to go. Jesus did it for us. Jesus came and he died for us. He, he defeated the grave for us, for, for the sins that we committed so that we could be forever in his presence. So that God would view us as just as righteous as him. It, it's mind-blowing what Jesus did for us. And if my hope were in my own goodness, in my own self-discipline to be obedient to the scriptures, in my own ability to do good and, and make the right choice, then I stand condemned in less than a second. The problem is with me. The problem is with our sin. And the law reveals that. The law condemns us. The law shows us how sinful we are. The law cannot save you. The law cannot acquit you. And the law cannot justify you. That's what we see from the law. That's what we see. And one of the beautiful things of the law is, well, I'll jump there in a little bit. Never mind. Um, so Paul's going to uh, conclude with something that would have been absolutely shocking to his Jewish friends. Right? At, at the very end of verse 20, he says this. He says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, that would have been um, provocative and irritating. It would have angered a pious Jew in his day. A pious Jew would have said, what do you mean through the Scripture comes the knowledge of sin? Through the Scriptures comes the knowledge of the great and holy God. That, that's what a pious Jew would say. And to be honest, he's, he's not 
He's not wrong. Through the Scriptures, in the Scriptures, we do see God revealing Himself to us. In the Old Testament, we see God revealing Himself to us, but also in the Old Testament, one of the reasons why we have the Old Testament is to show us how sinful we are. He's he's been provocative through this entire passage. He knows what He's doing, but He's doing it for a purpose. He's doing it to, to share the gospel. Paul isn't telling you everything that the law is. His purpose in the end of verse 20 is not to totally explain why the law exists, why God did it, why we have it, and what what it's meant to do. He's just saying one of the reasons for it is to reveal your sin to you. And think about it. The law itself in our fallen condition does show us our need for grace. It does. One of the beautiful things about the Old Testament, as you read through, whether you start in Genesis or go all the way through the end, one of the things that you find is how holy God is, how wonderful God is. You see his incredibly high standards, impossible standards. And what you also see is how much he hates sin and how seriously he takes sin, how seriously he takes rebellion. God is holy and perfect, and he does not tolerate sin. That's one of the things that we find in the scriptures. And as we read the Old Testament, we see, we see God and his character, and we see what he expects, and then we see how short we fall. That I cannot, no matter how hard I try, fulfill what the Old Testament expects. Think about the greatest commandment as an example. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, right? So, How can I fulfill that? Do I perfectly love the Lord with everything I have and every second of my life? Absolutely not. So I'm guilty right there. The law does not make us right with God. The law shows us that our relationship with God has been broken and that we need to be made right before him but that we cannot do that by ourselves or in ourselves. In light of the situation, the law really functions to reveal to us our sin, to convince us of our sin, to show us that we need an escape from sin, but we can't provide it. We need this escape. We, we know we're convicted. We know that we're, that we're enslaved, but there's nothing we can do. There's nothing I can do about it. And isn't it interesting that in those, have you ever noticed that in those uh, like patterns or habits of your life, uh, which really annoy or offend other people, right, to our spouses or our friends or our colleagues, the people that know us best, right, we have this habit that's really annoying, and, and they'll confront us with it, and they'll say, you know, you shouldn't do this. You know, when you embellish, when you tell a story, that's actually lying, and it, it's not right. You, you shouldn't do these things. You, you, you know, you... you cuss too much, and it's, it's not okay. You have a filthy mouth. You shouldn't do that. What do we do? One of our favorite techniques when we're confronted with something like that is to deny that we do it. What are you talking about? I don't do that. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't do that. That's not me. You must, you must misunderstand what I say. No, I'm not. I don't get angry all the time. You're just misunderstanding what I'm. I'm just kind of raising my voice a little bit. 
it is so painful for us to think about our own sin, to be confronted with our own sin, that we would rather lie to ourselves and lie to those around us and pretend like we don't do it. It's true. The Apostle Paul says that the sinner loves to to cope through denial, and and the law is here to lift the mirror in front of us and to convince us that that, that we're in denial, that that we're, we're guilty. So it forces us to look at who we are, look at what we are, and, and that we need grace. The law can't save you. It can't make you right before God. It can't remove your sin, and it can't show you, but it can show you your need for a Savior. The law brings the knowledge of sin. It uncovers and exposes it. It shows its true nature and the fact that it deserves condemnation. The law brings the knowledge of sin. It enables us to to kind of perceive that that from the works of the law, no one, no flesh will be justified. Paul, he doesn't have an an issue with obedience. He, He encourages obedience. He doesn't hang up with the law. He loves the law. In fact, he's already said in in Romans that the law is good. But he has a hang up with people who think that they are obedient, who think that they are keeping the law, but they're not. Paul has a hang up with people like that. And he's saying, look, if, if you at the end of time are counting on the acquittal of God based based on being a nice person, based on doing good works, based on on your half-hearted attempt to be obedient to what the Scriptures say. If that's where your hope lies, then you're condemned. The verdict is already settled. And by the way, Paul is not pointing us to look within. We're being encouraged to find righteousness, but he's not telling us to look within us. So often we hear people say, oh, what we need to do is is look within and and find a power, that that spark, find find that goodness within you. And inside, you're a good person. And that is, I think, the worst advice in the history of the world. What we saw in Romans 3, verses 9 to 18, well, just 9 to 12, right? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. It does not make sense to look inside yourself to try to find righteousness because there is no righteousness inside of you outside of Christ. Paul's whole point in this passage is that there is nothing within us to look to that can get us off the hook. I'm guilty. I deserve condemnation. I deserve judgment. God can can rightly condemn me because I've disobeyed him. I've rebelled against him. And there is nothing within me that that I can look to and and use and say, God, look, look at what I have. I have this righteousness. There's nothing within me that I can stand and present before the Lord and, and hope to be judged, hope to be off the hook. The thrust of this argument is that we need to look somewhere else. We need to find a righteousness outside of ourselves. We need to look somewhere else other than ourselves to find a righteousness that will 
that will stand us before God. And Paul's question to us is this. What makes you secure before the holy God of the universe? And the answer is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is what stands before God. But that brings a problem. Because I'm not the righteousness of God. If I want to be viewed as righteous, if I want to be viewed as not guilty, I need the righteousness of God. But I'm not the righteousness of God. My life condemns me. If the standard is the righteousness of God, I'm condemned. So where can I get the righteousness of God? And the scripture says, well, the Apostle Paul says, well, that's where I wanted you to be in the first place. Because until you understand that you need the righteousness of God, you know, to stand before, before the awesome holy God, you're not ready to hear the gospel. You're not ready to hear the good news. Until you're ready to admit, I need the righteousness of God because I don't have it. Because I, I, I can't do it on my own. I don't possess it. I need righteousness from somewhere else. I, I need the righteousness of God and I've got to find it until you come to that point where, you, where you're looking to repent from your sins and find the righteousness of God. You're not ready to hear the gospel. And so for the rest of this book, after Paul has condemned everyone on the planet except for Jesus Christ over the, the course of chapter 1, 2, and 3, the rest of this book, Paul is going to tell us just how wonderful and beautiful and glorious the good news is. But it will make no sense to us until we first acknowledge our need of that good news, our need for righteousness that doesn't come from within ourselves. Until we're honest with ourselves and we run from our from our, our good deeds. We run from, uh, to the one place where we can find the righteousness of God. And that is in Jesus Christ as offered in the gospel. That's where you find it. Remember, Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I have no righteousness of my own to offer before God. I need his righteousness to be saved. And the righteousness of God is found in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's why the apostle in Romans chapter 1, in the theme of this book, says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Why? Because in it, in it, is the righteousness of God is revealed. I do not have the righteousness of God on my own. I need it through Jesus Christ. And that's the issue that Paul is pressing that's the issue, the issue that Christ is pressing. When he said, come to me, all you who are, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not saying if you're tired, pray. He's saying that, that you need his righteousness, and he will give it. He will deliver, and you cannot on your own. You need him. You need him, and you need his righteousness. 
One of the beautiful things that, happen, that happens when you put your faith in Christ, it's called the great exchange. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are placed on him and his righteousness is given to you. And God the Father, as you are judged, God the Father looks at you as though you are Jesus Christ, as though you are as righteous as Jesus Christ. It doesn't make sense. It's hard to understand that Jesus Christ, that Jesus God, God the Son, would take my sins and give me his righteousness when I've rebelled against him. But that's exactly what happens. That's exactly why the gospel is the power of God, of God for salvation. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Look, if, if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you have questions about it, if you struggle with this, let, let me tell you, you, do not, you, you cannot produce good works on your own to be viewed as righteous by the holy God of heaven. You can't. Your righteousness must come from somewhere else. And you know that you're guilty. You know that you've failed. You know that you've sinned. You need a Savior. And the only one who is able, the only one who is worthy to save you is Jesus Christ. And you can be saved by repenting of your sins being confronted with your sins, rejecting your sins, crying out to God for, for grace and for mercy and trusting in Christ as your Savior. That's how someone is saved. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. God, you are wonderful in every way. You're perfect. God, we know that you're holy. And you're set apart and you're great and you're mighty. God, we know that, that on our own, left to our own devices, we are not. We are not righteous. We are not holy. In fact, we are rebels. We are your enemies. But you are good and you are kind and you are loving and you are merciful. And while we're still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us, to lay his life down for the sins that we committed. And so we're saved so we became your children because of what Christ has done on our behalf. God, I pray that if there is someone here this, this morning that doesn't know you, that has rejected you, that is consumed by their own sin, that doesn't know where to turn, doesn't know how to find righteousness, God, I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. I pray that the weight of their sin would be unbearable and that they would cry out for your mercy and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.